Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Oren J. Sofer. Oren teaches mindfulness meditation and nonviolent communication in both secular and Buddhist contexts. And he's the first author to integrate mindfulness and somatics with the tools and principles of nonviolent communication. He's the author of the book, Say What You Mean. And with Sounds True, he's created a new audio learning series. It's called Speak Your Truth With Love and Listen Deeply, a training in mindfulness-based nonviolent communication. At a time when we find our society so divided, where useful and productive discourse with people who hold different opinions, it often seems so hard to come by. Enter Oren J. Sofer, offering to teach us the skills of mindful communication, skills that ask us to stretch our heart, to identify our own needs at a very deep level, and also to see and respect the needs of others. His teaching is, I believe, a huge part of the medicine we need right now. Here's my conversation with Oren J. Sofer. Oren, to begin, and as a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners, can you share a little bit about your background? And, you know, I noticed that you spent two and a half years as a forest renunciate, and that really got my attention, and how from that deep place of practice, you came to be a teacher of mindful communication. Sure. Thanks, Tammy. Uh, happy to be here with you. Um, so I started studying and practicing Buddhist meditation when I was about 19 in college, um, both due to sort of uh, kind of ordinary first world suffering and a good dose of curiosity and um, came across uh, Marshall Rosenberg's work with nonviolent communication about Five years later, um, when I was living and working at the Insight Meditation Society as a cook and having arguments with my colleagues about how to cut the carrots and how long to steam the broccoli <laughs> and finding that uh, all of the beauty and peace and compassion of my meditation practice would go out the window <laughs> whenever I didn't see eye to eye with someone. So that sort of uh, raised a little flag inside. <clears throat> and then you know, fast forward about 10 years, and um, I, I chose to step out of my lay life and spend some time with one of my monastic teachers, Venerable Ajahn Sachito, uh, training as a, as a monastic and a forest renunciate, um, which was a very uh, powerful and deep um, period for me in my life, both to understand and appreciate um, the lineage of Buddhist practice that I've uh, been a beneficiary of, um, and also to rediscover in a, in a deeper way my place in the world. Um, it was a very uh, difficult decision in some ways to uh, disrobe, to leave that training, um, but ultimately one that felt right. You know, I really, um, as much as I valued and the, the training, as much as I learned from it, uh, I realized that my heart and my character longed to be more connected and engaged in our world. And so um, it was uh, out of that place that I chose to come back to my lay life and uh, uh, continue, continue teaching. I had been teaching some before and, um, and then later ended up writing my book and uh, sort of sharing um, 
my understanding of how these uh, different paths come together, how the internal training of contemplative practice is really an essential ingredient for our conversations and relationships in life, and vice versa, how the more we pay attention to our communications and um, the healthier our relationships are, the more it actually deepens our spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. In your book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication, you lay out three foundations mm -hmm. for mindful communication. Number one, lead with presence. Number two, come with curiosity and care. And number three, focus on what matters. And I really want to focus on focusing on what matters. Okay. And we're going to do that. But you also describe in the book how these first two foundations really set the stage That's right. for mindful communication. So let's begin there and set the stage. And maybe you can briefly take us through each of these foundational steps. Let's start with leading with presence. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Tammy. Um, I think we all know how it feels to be in conversation with someone and notice that their attention is split, right? Whether it's you know on Zoom or on the phone and you kind of see their eyes diverting or you get the sense that they're multitasking or just even in real life in conversation and um, someone's attention is somewhere else. And if we contrast that with how it feels when someone's really there, we really have the sense that they're giving us their full attention. It's very powerful. And it, I think it sends a very deep message when we give someone our full attention. It says that you and what's happening right now in this conversation is important enough to me that I'm willing to give you one of my most precious resources that I can never get back my time, my, my energy and attention. So leading with presence means that before anything else in a conversation, before what happened, before how I feel, before what I want to say or have happen, can I just show up? You know, can I just be here fully human with another human being? And it sounds great, but, but it, it goes against so much in our world, in our society today, in terms of the pace of our life, the level of distractedness, the fragmentation of our attention, the pressure of um, the economy and technology, which are all taking us away from presence. Mm -hmm. So there are a whole host of benefits that, that come with this. I mentioned one of the most fundamental ones of just kind of opening the door to connection. Um, but it, it just, it gives us a ton of information when we're actually here about the other person and what's going on for them, about our own internal life. Um, it helps us make wiser choices because when we're aware, we're not on automatic. We can actually navigate in a conversation. And if we get reactive or defensive, we notice that and we can start to adjust so that we're not ending up saying something that later is going to take a lot of time and energy to clean up. So that's a little bit about leading with presence. And there's a whole really kind of versatile and creative array of tools we can use to learn how to do this. Everything from keeping a little bit of attention in our body as we do in mindfulness practice, you know, feeling your hands or your feet, um, to slowing down the pace of our speech just a little bit, or pausing um, to more advanced practices that have to do with balancing our awareness between our sense of self and the other person or the world around us. So that's a little about leading mm -hmm. with presence. I'll just pause there and see how that lands for you or if you want to mm -hmm. follow up. Well, of course, all. because you're a mindful communicator, you're going to pause and see how that's landing <laughs> for me. That's that's uh, skillful. And what I notice in listening to you, even just in these first few minutes of our conversation as you're talking mm. about leading with presence, I notice coming into my heart more coming into being fully here more. Mm. So I just want to start by acknowledging that and being grateful to you. Mm. And I also notice all the times I'm reflecting in my mind's eye that I get bored during meetings or conversations and I reach out for my iPhone because I'm looking for greater stimulation. And, you know, I can think of my wife saying to me like, 
I can't believe you just picked up your iPhone while we were talking. And I'm thinking like, yeah, but you know, we live together and you're going to go. And she's like, no, you have to make an announcement. Excuse me. And so I'm wondering uh, just in terms of, because you mentioned technology and I just think it's a thing, especially in our home or when we're out with people, what, what's your suggestion for relating to our iPhones or whatever our uh, digital device might be? Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. That's a good, (laughs) that's a good way of putting it. Um, Wow. I mean, that's a big question to me because it's, it's so addictive and there's so many habits around it. Um, I I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll just respond to the specific part of what you said, because I think it's such a broad question and there's so much we could explore, right? About just how to relate to our devices. Um, but I, I, I tend to, I tend to agree, agree with your wife. Uh, of course. I agree with her too. I agree with her too. Yeah. That, you know, we're in conversation with someone it's, and I certainly find myself doing it too. You know, my wife says to me sometimes, you know, it's definitely happened where it's like, Hey, like, you know, both of us, like, why are you looking at your phone? We were, we were just talking and you just picked up your phone. And, you know, I think that a lot of the time it's not, it's not actually a conscious choice, right? It's, it's really coming from habit where, we feel a little anxious or impatient, or you mentioned feeling bored and that, you know, we just reach for that comfort, for that distraction, for that release of something to stimulate us in a half conscious way before we even know it, we're, we're no, we're no longer listening to the person in front of us. And it might take them to point it out and be like, wait, what just happened? You know? So yeah, when we can, when we're conscious, I think one of the things I'll finish that sentence first, when we're conscious, we can do what you just said, you know, to say like, Hey, I need to check something. Do you mind? Right. But I think one of the things that's lovely about the nonviolent communication practice, that's kind of at the heart of the communication training aspect of what I teach, um, is it helps us to be more aware of what's happening inside and to make clearer and more empowered choices. So for example, if you and I are having a conversation and I notice that I'm starting to feel bored or have a sense that, oh God, this is a waste of time, this, you know, rather than doing something unconscious and habitual um, or kind of awkwardly trying to change the subject, um, I can be aware not only of how I feel, but of what's important to me. We call in nonviolent communication what my needs are, and we can unpack that a little bit later. But you know what, what, what actually matters to me now? And it's like, well, you know, I value my time and I wanna, wanna feel engaged, I wanna feel alive. And then I can make a different choice about how do I actually want to respond and relate in a way that's going to help me move in that direction, whether it means um, asking a question that can bring the conversation back to life, checking in with you about, hey, it kind of feels like our conversation just got a little bit, I don't know, stale or routine. Is that, is that just me or how are you feeling, right? We can actually do something different other than reaching for the phone. Mm-hmm. Now, one more question here about leading with presence. I thought it was quite brilliant how you teach people that if you notice yourself becoming dysregulated or not really able to have the conversation, not Mm. being there, you Mm. can say something like, I'd really like to continue our conversation, but I'm not in the best frame of mind to do that right now. Mm. Can we take a break and come back to this? And once again, just confessing here and sharing with my partner, she said, why don't you write that down (laughs) and use that as, you know, so I think that's just so important, this idea that you could pause a conversation. So maybe you could say a bit about that and when it's good to use that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll just, I'll just riff off what you're saying first, Tammy, just for a sec, which is, I think I love having short one-liners that we memorize. So communication's hard and relationships are complicated. So the more we can kind of know ahead of time, hey, if I get stuck, if I'm in this situation, here's something I can say. And I don't have to reach for the right words and struggle to deal with, you know, my anxiety or or feeling frozen inside because I've practiced and memorized something clear and simple that actually reflects my values. So I love that just about the example you're giving. And pausing is one of those instances where 
Um, for any reason, whether it's that we feel tired or don't have the energy, we're in a rush, or we're getting reactive, um, or any number of reasons where we've, we've assessed inside, this is not gonna be helpful. The conditions, essentially the conditions are not present for us to have the kind of conversation I want. And one of the things that's so powerful about the, the way I encourage people to do this is it's taking responsibility for our part in it instead of putting it on the other person, which means that there's less to argue with. If I say to the other person, you know, I'm not sure if anything else I say now is gonna be helpful. And in fact, it might actually make things worse. You know, I'm committed to figuring this out. Would you mind if, if we just put this down for now and come back to it tomorrow? There's very little to argue with there because I'm taking responsibility for my own lack of capacity or interest or resilience in the moment rather than putting it on the other person. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge here is that often when I'll just once again, just speak for myself as the every person straw person in this, mm. when I'm not in the place to have the conversation, mm. the horse has already left the barn. I right. mean, if I had the kind of presence of sure. mind to say, right, I'm right. not in a good, I wouldn't need to say it right? You know, often. Right. So I, I, now I know that you have training in somatic experiencing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Peter Levine's work and training yeah. people how to work with trauma and trauma activation. Yeah. So when we notice, you know, oh my, I don't, I don't even have the presence of mind to ask to have this conversation later because I'm right. too upset at this point, you know, yeah. I'm off the rails really. Yeah. Help me, Orrin. Help me, help me. Well, life's hard, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think one of the things about this training is having compassion for ourselves and, and, you know, recognizing we're all doing the best we can. And I certainly can offer a few tips and tools, but ultimately, um, it's going to be imperfect. And that's kind of the nature of being human. And instead of holding ourselves to some unrealistic standard and beating ourselves up because I didn't do what Oren said to do in the book or something, you know, just, okay, you know, I'm trying. And um, for me, these skills and really our contemplative practice as a whole, it's not about getting it right or living up to some ideal. It's really about being human together. And when we don't live up to our expectations or values as so often happens, it's being able to take responsibility for that and and repair and find each other again, you know? So if we miss the moment and we say something hurtful, as I know I've certainly done many times in my life and suspect I will do again in spite of all my training, um, what I've gotten better and better at and what I would wish for all of us is number one, not beating myself up over it. You know, just acknowledging, yeah, I was in pain. That was hard. I was doing the best I can and learning, learning from the situation, right? And then being able to take responsibility and come to the other person to be accountable and to repair, to actually find each other again. And one of the, one of the things that I so value that I've learned through my own training in nonviolent communication is that having solid and secure relationships is not about never making a mistake or breaking trust. It's about being able to rebuild trust when we have when we have erred, right? And that's when we actually deepen the strength of our bombs because we recognize, oh wow, we can actually disconnect from each other and find each other again. That's actual, that's real connection, right? And anyone who's married or in a long-term relationship knows, right? Like that's what it's about. It's about how do we find each other again and again. You teach this practice that we can have a do-over. We can ask, yeah. are you willing? And I'd love to have a do-over. And I thought, you know, it takes a lot of humility to do that. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of generosity just to even yeah. really be like, I want, you know, like you really have to be in your heart to say, I'd like to have a do-over. Is that mm -hmm. okay with you? Yeah. I think it's a beautiful idea. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Just to go back to what you said, though, about, you know, if I had the presence of mind to pause, I wouldn't need to pause. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, I think this is really where the training of leading with presence hits the road, where the rubber hits the road with it, because it's that training that, one, helps us to notice 
when we are getting activated, right? When we are starting to lose the sense of being grounded, oriented, and balanced, um, we get those signs earlier. And then number two, we learn how to regulate better, how to not let it get to the point where we're so far over threshold that we no longer have choice in how we're relating, where we can actually start to kind of work with the activation we're feeling by taking a deep breath, by feeling the weight of our body, by looking around the room, using these very basic orienting techniques that Peter Levine teaches and these deactivation techniques so that we can begin to steer the conversation in another direction. And, and that takes training. And which is why, you know, I, I really relate to communication as it's, it's a learnable skill. It's something that we can actually train ourselves in, which means that it takes time, it takes effort, and that we need to, we need to have a method Right? We can't just think about it and get better at communication. We actually mm -hmm. need to do exercises to learn and relearn these habits. And that's the aim of a lot of what I teach is to give people those methods. All right, let's move on to yes. the second foundation. Because as I said, I really want to get to number right. three. All right. right, come with curiosity and care. Right. Speak a little about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, come, I, I, I use a because I'm a language nerd, I use a different preposition. I say, come from curiosity and care. Both are beautiful because coming with is that sense of offering and coming from is that for me, it's like, where is this arising from inside me? So this is about our intention. Um, and what I mean by that is the motivation or quality behind our words and actions rather than the outcome of the conversation we're hoping for which can be relevant, but when we're fixated on a particular outcome, it tends to put us in an adversarial relationship with the other person. And then we miss all kinds of cues and opportunities to actually be creative and work together. So intention is powerful in conversation. I, I often say it's one of the most powerful and transformative factors in a conversation for two reasons. Number one, it's kind of what's steering the conversation. It's, it's the unseen force that is driving us in a certain direction. Number two, it plays a huge role in our nonverbal communication. It is animating and shaping our facial expressions, our tone of voice, our body language, subtle micro expressions that we don't even control and are often not conscious of, but which we pick up on nonetheless and interpret from the other person. So our habitual conditioning, particularly if there is a difference of opinion or conflict, is to default to less helpful intentions, such as blaming one another, trying to be right, trying to get our way, trying to control or manipulate the situation. And all of those strategies can produce results. Otherwise, none of us would <laughs> use them ever but they come at a cost. They can damage the relationship. Uh, they limit the creativity of what happens. They reduce intrinsic motivation. So instead we can, when we're mindful, when we're actually aware, we can check where we're coming from, be really honest about our motivations if they are mixed and incline more towards the ones that are gonna be helpful that are actually going to open the floor for more collaboration, mutual understanding and exploration. And the, the default, there are many helpful intentions we can have in a conversation, but the one that I encourage people to learn as the baseline, just to come back to, is this kind of core uh, combination of curiosity on the one hand, um, the humility to really seek to understand in a genuine way what matters to both of us and care being connected to our heart, to our values for kindness and our shared vulnerability as human beings. And these are really, you know, the two core intentions that drive mindfulness practice of genuine interest, curiosity, and loving kindness, a quality of gentleness and tenderness in the heart. So we, we translate those into our relationships. And again, with this too, people can feel it. You know, when we're coming from the genuine intention to understand, it can be disarming because when somebody else really feels and trusts that we are not just interested in steamrolling them to get what we want, but would like to work together 
to find something that is as workable as possible for both of us, they can stop putting so much energy into defending themselves and resisting us and actually work together. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I just want to say the fact that you're a language nerd is something I really respect. And, you know, I do believe subtle is significant. And by saying come from curiosity and care, in addition to with, it's powerful. And what that brought up for me is a question, yeah. which is if we find ourselves in a state of anger and blame, let's mm. say, mm. how do I transform so that I come from curiosity and care to the conversation. When the truth is, I feel uh, I'm feeling angry and I'm blaming this person for this terrible thing that they did, incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the first step is being honest with ourselves. You know, a lot of the time we don't, we're not, we're not, either we're not aware, or if we are aware, we're not willing to take responsibility for the fact that, yeah, I'm pissed. And yeah, I am blaming you, particularly if we have a spiritual practice, because we have all these ideas about how I should be and what my values are. And so it's like, I'm not, I'm not blaming you. No. But inside, we really do you know, think you should have and you shouldn't have. And so I think being honest with ourselves is, is the first step. Um, and then, interestingly enough, um, the shift is to get curious about what's going on for ourselves. That's where it starts. And, and Marshall Rosenberg, one of the um, very kind of insightful and quotable things he was fond of saying, and I, I know you knew Marshall, so you probably heard him say this uh, directly, is that all blame and judgments are tragic expressions of our own unmet needs. So when I'm blaming you, that's really valuable information. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not so helpful of an approach if we want to work together, figure this out. But it's information. And it's information about something that matters to me. So the place to get curious and to come from care is with myself. To recognize like, oh, wow, I'm really upset and in pain here. Ouch. Can I just for a moment bring some care to my own heart and recognize I'm suffering in this situation? And then get curious, okay, I am blaming this person with all of my being. There must be something really important to me. What matters? What do I care about so deeply that I am this upset? And then I can start to identify number three, focus on what matters. What's important to me here? Is this about respect? Is this about dignity? Is this about keeping agreements? Is this about balance, fairness, justice. What what is the value that is so core to me that I feel so tied up in knots and I'm so filled with blame? When I can identify that, I start to take some of my power back because my energy is no longer getting thrust out at you and trying to control you, but is actually seated deeply in myself, centered in my own values And now I can move from that place of deep clarity and centeredness into our relationship, into our world, and speak my truth with clarity and care without the blame, which is much, tends to be much more powerful. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. You know, uh, we worked for many years with an organizational consultant, it sounds Mm. true. And I was fortunate that I could call him whenever I felt upset about something. Mm. And he would, you know, talk me through it and help me see a good path uh, through. And I noticed a pattern. I would call and he would let me complain for however long I I needed to kind of get it all out. And then he'd say, Tammy, what do you need? Right. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to keep calling you when you just, I'm just going to write this down and do that. And it'll, you know, I'll get to the same place. Like, what do you need? Yeah. So help me understand when it comes to this third part yeah. of mindful communication, what really mm-hmm. matters, mm-hmm. how this question, answering this question is, seems to be at the heart of it. Help me understand that. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's a few different facets to it. And, and um, as you probably recall from my book, just that instruction to focus on what matters has many different layers of meaning within it, right? So on the surface level, 
what what I'm referring to there and why it's so powerful and kind of the key to this is um, <clears throat> most of us have been conditioned by our society, our education system, perhaps our culture or religious background. Um, when something doesn't work for us, when we don't enjoy something, when we disagree with it, we tend to experience that by projecting it outwards onto others through the lens of blame, right? So if I don't like what someone is doing, they are fill in the blank. You're an imbecile, you're controlling, you know, you are this. Now, what that does is it puts me in a position, one, where anything I want to say to this other person we're immediately in a conflict because I'm judging and blaming them. And most people don't enjoy that and will defend themselves. Number two, if you are the problem, the only way I have to address this is to change you or control you. And how's that work? <laughs> right? We hopefully we all reach a point in our lives where we begin to recognize that that's futile, that we can't control others. We might be able to influence them some, but you know, trying to control other people as a way of finding peace of mind um, or well-being in life is a waste of our energy and time. So if I can start to identify, if I can start to translate those perceptions of you are so and why are you and you should and you shouldn't into, oh, I really value, I really want, I really long for, you know, this is what's important to me. Now I have taken all of my power back. I'm clear about what matters to me and I can be creative about how to go about acknowledging, attending to, and perhaps even fulfilling those underlying values. So this, this one shift from the projected lens of blame onto others to identifying our own needs, or often it's, it also goes inward, right? If I have some pattern or habit that I don't enjoy about myself, what do I do? I blame myself. Why are you so lazy? Why are you so self-centered? Why are you so this? Where does that leave me? There's nothing I can do about that, right? I'm in conflict with myself now, rather than being able to identify, okay, well, what matters to me here? Whatever that behavior is. So the fundamental principle, which Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of nonviolent communication, didn't invent. He learned it from his teachers, from people like Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow. This underlying um, perspective that comes out of humanistic psychology, as you're well aware of, is that part of what makes us human is that we are motivated in life to fulfill or satisfy certain fundamental underlying needs. And so this, I'll say more about what's meant by that word need in a moment, but what this does is one, it empowers us in our own life to identify what's actually driving us, what's really important to me. If I don't know that, I am bound to habitually and perhaps even compulsively repeat the same behaviors, not actually knowing why I'm even doing it. On a relational level, it allows me to see something more fundamental to another person's humanity than their actions or views. This is at the heart of compassion and nonviolence. You know, this is what um, enables us to actually fulfill the vision that Dr. King had um, based on the teachings of Jesus of how do you love your enemies? How do you love your neighbor? You know, when they're doing things that are actively harming your family or community. We have to learn to see one another in a different way. So focusing on what matters means one, I am able to identify what I need, what I value, what's important to me and my community. And two, to see beyond the surface of another human being to something deeper in their heart. What actually matters to them that I can, that I can get behind that I can support because it's it's so deep that it's shared. It, it reveals the common ground. So what's meant by a need is not the kind of usual sort of 
cultural associations we might have with that word. I'm being needy, self-centered, demanding, or or the the opposite. You know, in our kind of individualistic culture, if I have needs, I'm somehow weak and dependent. What we mean by that are these fundamental underlying motivating factors, these qualities in our heart that we care about. So I like to talk about three different layers of needs that we all have as human beings. And the first, and please feel free to jump in here and interrupt me at any point if I'm going on too long here. Uh, the first is what we all recognize as our basic human needs, kind of physiological needs for food, air, water, shelter, clothing, medicine, et cetera. No one would argue that we as human beings need those to survive. Um, but the reality is that we are more than our bodies. And part of what makes us human is that we don't just stop there. We have what we might call relational needs. We have a whole you know, limbic part of our brain that is about relationship and connection. So we need love, we need understanding, we need connection, community, belonging, touch, play, all of these things that we experience in relationship. And we know that babies and infants will actually not, their neurology will not develop properly without empathy and love and touch. And the same holds true for us as adults that there's only so long we can go as an adult without love and acknowledgement and understanding before there's some real damage, before we start to lose it and do something hurtful and crazy as we so sadly see all around us in the world. So we have relational needs. And then we also have what we might call spiritual needs or higher needs. Um, which again is this understanding that there is a part of human consciousness, the human psyche that is beyond the material plane. We have needs that we cannot fulfill or satisfy just through the physical world. We have needs for meaning, for purpose, for peace, for a sense of transcendence or communion. And so the more we are aware of and in touch with these qualities and aspects of our life as human beings, the more vitality we experience, the more choice and agency we have, and the more creative we can be about how to transform our world and work together to craft a different future for our children. Mm -hmm. So let's say, Oren, someone's listening and they're like, you know, I can pretty much articulate what my basic human needs are. I know what those are. Yep. And I'm even yep. somewhat in touch with what my relational needs are. But I'm not yeah. sure I understand or know and can easily articulate what these spiritual or higher needs are in myself mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. how I can mm -hmm. see them in mm -hmm. someone else. How I could say, oh, I get mm -hmm. it. I get what where this person's coming from. I get what their mm -hmm. need is. Mm -hmm. How can you help us? I mean, you talk about how this is a training. It's learnable. How do I really learn sure. about how to identify my own needs at all three levels yes. and see what someone else is needing? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Great question. So yeah, it is a training and, and it's a graduated training. So it starts by just developing our vocabulary. There's all kinds of fascinating research about how you can't experience something if you don't have a word for it, right? And kind of like how language mediates our experience of reality and all that. So if we don't have a concept or a word to describe our needs, we, we it's very difficult to be aware of them. So that's why in nonviolent communication, we provide these really, I think, powerful and radical lists called a needs list, where you can actually look at this list of words and and reflect on it and be like, oh, wow, yeah, I need encouragement. I could use some reassurance, you know? I Wow, I really value belonging and community and peace. So just familiarizing ourselves with the concepts is, is a starting point. That's, that's the foundation. And then beginning to actually practice during the day, asking ourselves as often as we like or can remember, like, what matters to me here? What do I need? And this could be when we're actually doing something, right? So, you know, here we are, da, 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 working, working, and you get up. Next thing you know, you're standing in front of the refrigerator or the, or the snack cupboard and, right, reaching for something. You just pause, wait, oh, what do I need? Am I hungry or do I need some pleasure? Do I need some relaxation? Do I need a break, right? What deeper need am I trying to fulfill? So we can just ask ourselves that question throughout the day 
as a way of learning how to shift the focus of our attention from what we call in nonviolent communication our strategies, which are the specific behaviors and actions we undertake as human beings to the underlying need. What's driving this? What, what am I really reaching for in my heart here? The more we do that, the more familiar we get with some of these factors. Now, the tricky part <clears throat> is that, you know, by the time we're probably like eight or nine years old, and then from there on, we've all internalized a whole bunch of messages about whether or not we're even allowed to have needs and which needs are okay for us to have mm. based on the gender we've been socialized into, our class, our um, education background, our culture or religious background. So, you know, like for me, um, being identified as a man, you know, it was okay for me to feel angry, but, you know, and uh, to have certain needs, but it wasn't okay for me to feel scared or vulnerable or to want reassurance or connection. Those were things that our culture and society shamed me for as a young boy. So we, we start to have, to, as we learn to identify our needs, we encounter barriers that are about how we've been socialized, which often come with very painful emotions and past experiences that take uh, time and energy and effort to heal to recognize the, the pain and the loss and the sadness of being told that you don't matter, you're not entitled to this, you're being selfish, what about other people? And to actually start to re-examine and reclaim what it means to be fully human. And that um, to have needs doesn't mean that other people's needs don't matter or become invisible. In fact, the more we are able to identify and acknowledge our own needs, the more aware and sensitive we become of others' needs. It's when we don't allow ourselves to have our own needs that we tend to um, shame and blame and guilt others for asking for things. Because if I don't, if I don't allow myself, say for example, to ask for support, to get help when I need it, and then you come to me and ask for help, there's a part of my heart that's gonna be like, well, why do you get to have it? I don't get to have that, suck it up, right? Or we start to believe the opposite that, you know, my sense of self-worth is, is determined by how much I can help others, right? We, so we internalize all these messages and all of this comes to the surface as we start to explore what our needs actually are. It can be very challenging. So that's also a very important part of the journey. And then finally, where, the, where some of the real transformation happens is about the energy of contraction or what we would say in Buddhism, we would call um, grasping or attachment around our needs. We, we start to learn the difference between feeling completely defined by or oppressed by a certain need that I have to have this. And if I don't have it, it's not going to be okay. Or the reverse, I've never had this and I never will. For some of that contraction in the heart to start to loosen and to begin to have a different relationship with our needs, one that's based on awareness and compassion where we can start to recognize, ah, this is part of what it is to be human. I value this, I long for it, it feels vulnerable, and it's okay. It's okay if it's not totally fulfilled the way I want it to be because I have a relationship with it, because I am honoring its presence and existence in my heart as, as a beautiful aspect of being human and being alive when we can start to develop that kind of mature and wise relationship with our needs, we have a lot more space and flexibility in our life and our relationships. Because I can come to somebody else and say, hey, you know, I, I really value this, you know, connection, spending time together. And it would be so lovely for me to share that with you. And the, the pressure 
the anxiety, um, the the demanding nature of I have to have this from you or else can start to can start to quiet because we have our own inner foundation of understanding and well-being around those needs, recognizing that if this person can't fulfill or satisfy this for me, number one, there are a lot of other people in the world and I have other strategies and ways of fulfilling it. And number two, ultimately, if life can't provide this for me, it's not going to break me. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with me that I can still have a relationship with it and appreciate it and live from a place that honors those needs and qualities, regardless of whether or not life offers the circumstances to fulfill them in the way I would like. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. And in a way, you answered the question that was coming up for me. I'll state it just mm -hmm. to make sure, mm -hmm. which is if I'm in a mindful communication with someone and we both mm -hmm. identify really what our genuine needs mm. are and they're in opposition mm. right we're still going to be okay is right. that true yeah well it depends on a lot of conditions of course but you know yes so there's some interesting things that can happen there and i i like to use the there's kind of you know this classic dynamic that happens in most romantic or intimate relationships that many of us can relate to of, you know, one person wanting more space and the other person wanting more connection, right? It's kind of classic pursuer and pursued dynamic. Um, there's a few things that can happen when, when we're able to really talk about what it is that's driving us and what matters to us. And we discover as you, as you so clearly put, you know, like, wow, our needs seem to be in opposition with each other. So what we find with this practice is the, the deeper we go, the less needs are actually in conflict. What, what we usually say is that most conflicts happen at the level of our strategies, our ideas about how to meet our needs. And the deeper we go, the less conflict there is at the level of needs. So one thing that can happen is we start to get more curious and go even deeper and say, well, tell me more about what it means to you to have space, about why that's so important for you. Because even a need like space ultimately can be a strategy to meet some deeper need. Like, is it about feeling connected to yourself? Is it about having choice and agency? Is it about, you know, loving yourself? What is it about for you? So I can, I can inquire in that way and really try to understand what it is at the heart for you and vice versa. I can dig deeper in myself and say, well, what is it about having that connection that's so important to me? Why do I value that and long for it so much? What does it do for me? You know, does it give me a sense of belonging? Does it, is it reassurance and I feel safe inside? You know, is it love? I know that I'm loved. So what happens there is the deeper we go, something kind of miraculous can occur. And Marshall used to talk about this in a very spiritual way. He would he would call it divine energy was how he experienced it. In Buddhism, Buddhism we talk about compassion. Is that when we get to this very kind of core fundamental level of one another's heart and really understand what's going on, compassion tends to arise and move towards the place of pain. So there can be a shift that occurs where when I really understand what it's about for you, the whole constellation of needs in my world begins to shift where say my need for connection is now no longer in the foreground and the most important because I also have a need for say compassion or for contributing. And I say, wow, wow, I'm really getting, you know, what that is for you and why it's important for you. And now that I understand, I want you to have that. Doesn't mean I don't also want connection, but I want both. So there can be this shift in that way where there's more flexibility and willingness to work together. And sometimes that can happen in both directions or we can start to be creative. Right? And now that we understand, it's like, well, how do we work together to have your needs and my needs met? How do we find uh, some sort of balance where we're both choosing to support each other in this? 
Mm -hmm. Now let's move out of the sphere of intimate partnership and talk about family relationships Mm -hmm. for a moment and how seeing needs could be a doorway to compassion. You know, during the pandemic and during this time of so much political divisiveness, I've heard more and more from people about how I just can't be with my family. I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't be with uncle whatever for Thanksgiving. I can't do it anymore. I can't listen to this going on. I, you know, mindful communication. No, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can yeah. we see the needs of someone who has such clearly different views on things that we yeah. are really important to us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a there's so much in what you're saying there. Um, again, I think the first step is to be more clear about our own needs. Just to start by translating our views. If we're talking, you know, politically, okay, well, what are your views on immigration? What are your views on abortion? What are your views on taxation or, you know, whatever it is, gun control and say, okay, well, what, what needs are you trying to meet? What are the values that you're holding underneath so that we're clear about what it is that matters to us? That's the first step. And then to, to stretch the heart, say, okay, what if I, gave this person the benefit of the doubt and assume that there's some shred of goodness in their heart, which is essentially the perspective of, of both nonviolence and um, uh, Buddhist, Buddhist philosophy and practice, you know, is that all beings want to be happy. It's just that we go about that in ways that are often confused uh, based on ignorance and delusion and greed and hate. So if I were to temporarily entertain the notion that this person has some shred of goodness in their heart and that they're reaching towards something, what could they be reaching towards, right? And then to to really listen and look and say, well, if they had that, if they got what they wanted, what would it do for them? What would it give them? Is it about a sense of safety in their community? Is it about a sense of belonging? Is it about honoring the past and, you know, having a sense of tradition? So we can look for the deeper values underneath it and say, I can disagree with with what, you know, what you want to have happen and still acknowledge underneath what it is that um, you would have or experience or get that matters to you if that were to come to pass. And then there's this whole other question. And, and I'll just say one more thing there. You know, what that does is it, it can help to, to free our, our hearts from some of the animosity and hostility that we feel, you know, which is so, so painful and kind of tearing our world apart that we demonize one another and reduce each other to our positions. It's so painful and detrimental to our own heart, let alone to public discourse and the sense of the fabric of society. But then the the next question of how do I, do I have a relationship with you at yeah. all? And if so, yeah. how? That's its own question, yeah. right? In terms of like, do we get together for the holidays? What if we do? What kind of agreements do I ask for about, you know, the conversation, what's the purpose of our getting together, you know, and I've written about this a bunch on on my blog, usually every year at the holidays, I publish something saying, okay, like, (laughs) here are some reminders, you know, and you're getting together with family for how to deal with these situations, because it is so common. Um, And if we don't take time to plan and strategize, it, it often does devolve into useless argument. So it's, it's necessary not just to identify what's important to one another, but um, to actually be clear ahead of time about what's our purpose, what are our, um, what's the line that where we feel like, you know, when something gets crossed, it's, you know, like it's one thing to say, Let's not talk about X, right? I thought we had an agreement. We're not going to talk about that. And then it's another thing to sort of feel like it's outside of our integrity to not speak up and challenge a certain view, right? That we feel is very harmful to others and to, 
you know, walk that line and say, make a statement or speak up without opening up a whole discussion. So, you know, to speak out against homophobia or racism or transphobia or all these different forces that are, um, that are prevalent in our, in our world and society. And those are decisions that, you know, we each make for ourselves. but that it's important to take time before getting together with people in our family and reflect on how, how do I want to show up? What, I'm, what am I going to say if, or when, what do I want to ask for? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there are, there are cases where we, we might choose not to engage in terms of not to, not to be around others. And, and that doesn't mean that we have to hate them, but um, we can still have a place in our heart for them and, and make choices to, uh, to, not, to not get together if, uh, if we determine that it's uh, you know, so painful or costly emotionally or energetically, um, or that we don't have a sense that it will actually be um, onward leading or forward leading. In, in our lives. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, the level of polarization that many of us are experiencing at the societal level, it's so painful. Uh, some people are predicting that here in the United States, we could be headed towards something like a civil war right here in the United States in our lifetime. How do you envision that people who are trained they're willing, they're mm -hmm. making this commitment to mindfulness mm -hmm. training and conscious communication mm -hmm. and working yes. with our own activation. What's yes. your vision of how we can be a force for loving unification? Mm. Thanks, Tammy. A beautiful question. Well, I mean, I think we need we need uh leadership and um, venues to, to do that and to have those conversations. And I wouldn't, it's not so much my vision, but there are, there are those out there doing, doing that work and um, people like um, uh, the late Paula Green and the Karuna Center um, or the organization Braver Angels. And I think one of the insights that any of these groups having, you know, dialogue across differences, um, red, blue conversations, one of the, the key factors there is the understanding that there are a lot of conditions that need to be in place to have those conversations and that individual personal skill is not enough. So um, when we have these kinds of conversations, um, some of the things that are helpful to support um, transformation and understanding um, are things like having structures. So it's not just a free-for-all, but there's actually a process and a structure with certain agreements that we all uh, commit to following that can hold us in the conversation. And these are very, very, very basic things, but that have a huge impact. Things like, you know, speaking from your experience rather than from ideologies. Things like, um, you know, assuming good intent, listening for um, the what matters to others, uh, offering back your understanding, this kind of active listening skills. So this is one, one aspect of it. Another aspect that's, that's central and that we so often um, forget and overlook, even in our personal relationships, um, is getting to know each other and building relationship. And I think this is where, you know, the media and social media, um, it really fails us is because we get reduced to sound bites and we fail to see the whole human being. And, you know, most of the successful projects that I'm aware of that, that are working with, um, building dialogue across differences, whether we're talking about political differences or, um, repairing uh, relationships after war ha include a component of building human relationships, spending time together, working together, getting to know each other's families, cooking together, eating together. We need to learn to see and remember 
that we have more in common as human beings than we do that separates us. And the only way I know to do that is to spend time together, to actually be together, laugh together, to play together, and to share intimately from the heart, to share about who we are and where we come from and what we've lived through. And that's where we really start to see one another as whole and to say, you know, I disagree with you. I still disagree with you, but I see that you're a human being. I see your goodness. I see your pain and I have respect for you. And that's what can protect us against the kind of trajectory of devolving into violence that is uh, so precariously present right now. Mm -hmm. Beautiful answer. I just have one final question for you, Oren. I notice, yeah. I feel curious, I can see you there at the Insight Meditation Society chopping carrots and thinking, uh -huh. like, could we just chop the carrots the right way, please? Like, what's wrong with these people? Right. And then yeah. uh, being a forest renunciate and realizing that uh -huh. you were called to be in the world. Mm. But my question for you is, what gave you the clarity? What in your own motivation made you want to focus on mindful communication as the centerpiece of your work in the world? What you would write your book about and teach about mm -hmm. in the audio series, What Sounds True, Speak Your Truth with Love and Listen Deeply. What is the inner motivation for that to be the focus of your teaching mm -hmm. work? Oh, what a beautiful question. Thank you. Hmm. Okay, I'm just going to take a moment to listen inside and, and see. Hmm. Well, it's mysterious, isn't it? You know, what, what calls us in life and where we find ourselves. So I mean, I can, I'm aware of certain, certain things I can point to, um, you know, like I, I was very fortunate to grow up in a family where there was a lot of love between my parents and between them and myself and my brother. Um, but my folks also fought a lot and ended, ended up eventually getting divorced, um, when I was in my early twenties. And, um, I think that had a big impact on me. I think that um, seeing how much my parents really truly loved each other and how they were unable to find each other again later in life uh, broke my heart. Um, and it wasn't just about communication. You know, there was more there internally for each of them. But I, I think that was a key condition inside, you know, it was kind of, you know, wanting mommy and daddy to make it work sort of thing in the heart. Uh, and, you know, I say, I say that with, 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 uh, total lightness and seriousness at the same time, because it's, uh, it's a, it's kind of a beautiful thing that, you know, children long for, for their parents. Um, so there's that. And then, um, I talk about this in my book. There was, uh, I sat a retreat, one of the retreats I sat with the late um, Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, as I, I, I trust you know, in his tradition, the five precepts, or as they call them, the five mindfulness trainings are a really big deal. And you know, when you commit to them, it's a whole ceremony and you receive a Dharma name and a certificate. And so I was in my 20s and I did this um, retreat with Ty uh, in Vermont. And um, <laughs> at that particular, so I, you know, they went through the precepts and um, they have in the order of interbeing, Ty's community, lay community, they have a very deep and nuanced understanding of each of these trainings. It's not just don't kill, but it's really looking at your relationship with other living beings. It's not just don't steal. It's looking at your relationship with resources and future generations. And so I kind of went through each training and precept and I was like, mm, yeah, that one's going to be hard. Like I still eat meat, you know, like, well, I guess I do have some investments in the stock market and that's kind of, kind of tricky terrain and resource. So I felt like there wasn't any of them I could, fully, wholly commit myself to with integrity at that point. I was still using drugs a little bit. So the intoxicants one was, but when I heard the training about speech, 
when I heard his vision for using our communication to bring joy and peace into the world and our relationships, so the commitment to healing all uh, you know, conflicts, however small, I felt so inspired. And I just, something in my heart kind of leaped up and I said, that, I, I want that. I, that's something I can commit to. I really want to be able to do that. And so I took just that one training and that I think really was a key factor that sort of set me on this path and, and sparked something inside to devote myself to understanding it more and embodying it and sharing I'm it. So glad I asked. Wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah. I've been yeah. speaking with Oren J. Sofer. He's the author of the book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. And with Sounds True, he's created an original audio series, a training program. It's called Speak Your Truth with Love and Listen Deeply, a training in mindfulness-based nonviolent communication. Oren, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thanks for having me, Tammy. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's resources.soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>